835, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The new Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, heading to Moscow tomorrow. He will be the first high-ranking Trump administration official that will go to Moscow to meet with Russian officials. It is a very, very difficult time because, of course, of the airstrikes ordered at the end of last week by President Donald Trump. What happened to review the bidding? Everybody understands this. Uh, the Syrian president, Assad, who is been, has been engaged in a lengthy civil war with rebel forces, the evidence is uncontrovertible that he used chemical weapons and ordered a strike on a, ta- a rebel stronghold in the northern part of Syria. Everybody's seen the pictures. Looks like over 100 people died as a result of the chemical attacks. Matters are complicated because... The last time he did this, three, four years ago, President Obama said, okay, you you have now, there's a line in the sand, you have now crossed it. Instead of taking military action, though, John Kerry brokered a deal with the Russians where the agreement was that Assad will get rid of his chemical weapons storehouse, the Russians will make sure of that. And now it is very apparent that the Russians did nothing to eliminate the chemical weapons storehouse. So after the attack on his own people, international condemnation, and everybody knows the story, President Trump sends 59 Tomahawk missiles in, and the significance of it, does it eliminate Assad's Air Force? No, but I think it was designed to send a message. Over the weekend, Russia talking very tough, saying, hey, the United States has crossed the red line. This is an act of aggression. If they continue to do this, we will treat this as an act of war against a sovereign state. Russia, Iran, and China are pretty much the only countries that are denouncing this airstrike. Pretty much every other country through across the world and in that area of the Middle East, including Turkey, which is the neighbor, supports this. They said, look, this guy, and essentially the thinking is that Assad is out of control. Something has to be done to rein him in. All of this makes Tillerson, the Secretary of State, his visit to, his visit to Moscow much more complex. So over the weekend, I, I really was trying to figure out why why Russia cares about Syria? I mean, why why would you marginalize yourself on the international front to support th- this dictator in Syria? Why would you risk international condemnation? Why, at a time when Donald Trump appears to be trying to do everything he possibly can to suck up to Russia, why would you, again, risk this type of confrontation? And to tell you the truth, I I still don't think there's a good answer. I mean, the New York Times has this big piece about how Russia, wants under Putin, wants to be more of an international player and so they want to be seen as the broker of a, as a power broker in the Middle East, and so that's why they're on Assad's side. They're, um, Russia, and even in Russia, and there's elections coming up next year in Russia. Apparently, a lot of Russian citizens, and the Russian economy is in, is in is just in tatters. A lot of Russian citizens are asking the same question: What are we doing militarily in Syria? Why are we propping up Syria? Why do we care about Syria? But it, it appears as much as anything, it is just a face-saving thing. The Russians have gotten in there, and Putin doesn't want to back down because that would be viewed as a sign of weakness, just like they was perceived as weakness that they were in Afghanistan a couple decades ago and lost that war. Anyhow, it's going to be some tough times diplomatically over the next several days and weeks. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. There's two ways that this thing can go. 
One is that the Trump administration can try to make nice with Russia and try to say, okay, look, this was a one-off type of thing. You know, we want to try to maintain the relations that we've had, and, and, you know, we don't want you to be too upset with us. The other way they can go is to say, look, this Assad is a madman, and he is not worth the political capital that you are using to prop him up. And, you know, we want to see him out of there, and we want to impose economic pressures on you to pull your support. Because the truth of the matter is, once Russia pulls their support from Assad, his regime crumbles. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line, in my opinion. When the Secretary of State goes to Moscow next week, next, or later this week, the message that needs to be conveyed is enough is enough. Assad presents a danger to the region and a danger to the world. It is time for you, Russia, to figure out your face-saving move, but stop propping up this government. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. How should the Trump administration handle the Russians? I say, when it comes to Syria, take a hard line. We discuss. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 840, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 844, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. You listen to the Merry Football Sunday and next Wednesday night. That is a week from this Wednesday, April 19th. You get a rare chance to see them live and in person. Packers Radio Network team of Wayne Larrabee and Larry McCarran are going to sit down with me during Insight 2017. Don't miss this rare opportunity for some green and gold insight in person. Tickets are on sale online now at WTMJ.com. Do not be shut out. Get your tickets today. Insight 2017 at the Country Springs Hotel in Pewaukee next Wednesday night. That is April 19th. Coming up in about 25 minutes, um, approximately 9.10 this morning, will be your next chance to follow the Brewers. The correct caller will win a pair of tickets, a four-pack of tickets, actually, to see the Brewers and the Cardinals play at Miller Park later this month. And then um, we will have five daily winners, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. And then later on Friday morning, we will randomly select one of the names. That person will be our weekly grand prize winner, and they will qualify for a trip to Chicago to see the May 20th game between the Cubs and the Brewers. It's all sponsored by West Bend, the Silver Lining, Noodles and Company, and the home of the Brewers, 620 WTMJ. All right, I can tell it's going to be one of those weeks. My first text of the week. On the WTMJ, AccuNet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, we're talking about Syria and, you know, what the appropriate response should be and essentially, you know, how should the U.S. handle Russia, who has kind of dug in its heels and advancing its different arguments. First text says, Syria was a false flag attack. Mainstream media corrupt. What that means is there there is this, like, pocket of extremely right-wing conspiracy nuts like the same sort of and i'm sorry if you believe it was a false flag attack you are a nut um the same people who believe that we didn't land a man on the moon you know that that type of thing um there is a a small pocket of crazy people who believe that 
this attack on the rebel village didn't come from Syria and it didn't come from Assad and all that information showing, hey, we see the planes leaving the air base on like our monitoring thing. We see them flying over. We see them turning back. All that stuff. It, it's all a put up job to try to draw the U.S. into Syria. Well, OK, if, if you want to go down that route, my advice is tighten the tin foil around your head and, and buckle down. But for those of us who live in the real world. This is a major issue. I do not believe that the U.S. should be involved in nation building in any way, shape, or form. But at the same time, you know, we end up being the last remaining superpower in the world. You have a cup, a handful of crackpot dictators, um, like the guy in North Korea and Assad. Um, and the fact that Russia, because, well, Russia's decided that they, Russia has decided that it's a matter of face. They've gotten involved in Syria, and now they don't exactly know how to get out. I I think that the United States has to take a hard line on issues like this and say, look, this man poses a danger to the region. And at the very least, if he continues to act out in this fashion against the civilians that live in his country, if he continues to engage in genocide, we are not going to allow this. Now, does that mean... Sending boots on the ground into Syria? No, I think that that's something that you need to be very careful with. Does it mean that moving forward, perhaps the president should consult with Congress as to what the next steps are? Yes, but I think this is a situation where the U.S. has to stand up, demonstrate moral leadership, and say to Russia, look, we we are not going to allow this to go on. Civilized countries in the world are not going to allow this to go on, and you need to get with the program. And here's the bottom line of all this. I don't believe this is the Syria involvement, of course, according to everything I've learned, it is not popular in Russia. This is just not the hill, figuratively speaking, that I think the Russian government wants to end up dying on from a world perspective. So this is one where Secretary of State Tillerson, when he gets to Moscow, I think he needs to be taking a hard line on this. And if it temporarily damages the relationships between the U.S. and Russia, okay, so be it. That's what you end up doing. Big story number two for Christians. This is, I think you can make, I've always believed that for Christians, this is the holiest week of the year. Yesterday, of course, was Palm Sunday. This Friday is Good Friday. And then, of course, you have Easter coming up this Sunday. In Egypt, 10% of the Egyptian population is, is Christian. In Egypt, there were two suicide bombings during Palm Sunday services in two towns in northern Egypt. 44 people dead, over 100 people injured. And a number of the, the, the minority Christian population is saying to the Egyptian government, what, what is going on? ISIS or ISIL or whatever we want to call them, they are claiming credit for these various attacks. They're saying, you know, we are responsible for this. The minority Christian population in Egypt is saying, where is the government? Why isn't the government able to protect us? And the reality is, the, um, you know, the, 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 the government um, is involved in, again, in, in Egypt, they're doing everything they probably they could possibly can, the current government, to retain power. 
It's not, I think, that they are unsympathetic to the cause of the, the Christians and protecting them. It's just that they have a limited ability to do this. But you have 44 people dead, 100 people that are injured, and again, ISIS, as they are always want to do, whether they were actually responsible for these suicide bombings or whether they're simply claiming credit, you have these organizations that are, are at least reveling in the fact that you have, in this case, Christians that are killed while they are worshiping. So where do we go with this? And I guess one of these were radical Islamic extremists. That is not to say that people who follow Islam are extremists, but there are radical Islamic extremists. And of course, we've been unwilling and unable, at least in previous administrations, to label them as such. Here is what is frustrating to me. Why does the world continue to tolerate this if these if you had other factions um, that were operating with the intent to kill all the Muslims in the world for example let's say you had some radical fringe in the United States that was trying to extend its tentacles across the world and their idea was to kill Muslims or kill Hindus or whatever not only would there be outrage not only would there be universal condemnation, but I have no doubt that organizations like the United Nations would be coming together and systematically saying, all right, the nations of the world are outraged by this. We are going to come together and we are going to make every effort we possibly can to eliminate these hate organizations. And that is what ISIS is. Yes, these terrorists are a problem for the West, for Western civilization. They are a problem for Europe. They are a problem for the United States. But they are a worldwide problem as well. And it's more than time for the U.S. government and the United Nations to come together and say, look, we're going to bring the world together. And it's going to be U.N. actions against organizations that kill 44 people while they are worshiping in church on Palm Sunday and then boast about it. Big story number two, the Palm Sunday bombing at the Egyptian churches. To me, how much more of this do we have to see? How many more people have to lose their lives before the entire international community, starting with the starting with the United Nations, makes the decision to say we are going to commit worldwide to eliminating, in this case, the, the radical Islamic extremists who are proud of the fact that they kill 44 Christians on Palm Sunday. It's 852. Big thing number three coming up. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner. It's 855, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Are we getting any closer to a transportation fix? Hear from the man right at the center of the debate as Assembly Speaker Robin Robin Voice. Robin Voss joins Scafidi and Billstat today at 135. Check out that show. Uh, Steve and um, Eric do a very, very good job. Hey, coming up in 15 minutes, the segment is called What the Hell Was United Airlines Thinking? And if you... If you want to get a head start on it, go to WTMJ.com. You can see the video. Scre- the way it's screaming man dragged off plane by uniformed officials. I will tell you the story, and we will discuss right after our Follow the Brewers giveaway at 9.10. But if you want to get a head start and you want to see the video, Screaming Man Dragged Off Plane by Uniformed Officials, when you see that headline, you think, oh, my gosh, what did somebody do? Was this guy creating disturbance? Was he threatening to kill people? Was he threatening to blow up the plane? 
Well, no, the story is a little more, well, it's a little, I was going to say more complicated, but actually it's simpler than that, and it's a situation that you could find yourself in. What the hell was United Airlines thinking? We talk about that in about 15 minutes. Big thing number three. Um, And unfortunately, we're starting off the show on a bunch of, like, down notes, the attack on Syria. Then, of course, you know, the the story about the Palm Sunday bombing and the killing of the Christians in Egypt. Um, For everybody out there who thinks that we should have in this country open borders, who thinks that, you know, we shouldn't aggressively be enforcing immigration policies, or to me, the ultimate insanity, that when people come into this country on visas, and they overstay the visas, that we should simply ignore that and allow them to stay. I mean, I go back to the 9-11 attackers. You had people who came in legally into this country on visas and then just disappeared. In the United States, we do a very, very good job, I think, of regulating when people come in. The problem is we then lose track of them. And I understand there's some people who say this isn't a big deal. We don't necessarily need to control our borders. And the truth is, for most of the people who come in on visas and overstay by a day or two or something, it is an innocent mistake. It's just something where the timing doesn't work out right or whatever. But there are a small percentage of people, and the 9-11 attackers indicated that, people who got in the country. Well, what happened last week in Stockholm is you had a guy from Uzbekistan who had come into the country under their very liberal immigration policies, had decided he wanted to stay. He was turned down. They ordered him deported. He went underground. Um, they ordered him, well, they ordered, they wouldn't allow him to stay because he had ties to all sorts of radical extremist groups. And they thought, this is the kind of guy that we don't necessarily want in this country. So they said, no, you're not going to be allowed to stay. He went underground, essentially like the 9-11 attackers did. He hijacks a beer truck, drives it into a, um, into a shopping center, into a department store, ends up killing four people. And now, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, okay, maybe this open door policy isn't exactly the best idea. And Sweden's taking a look at it. Look, and I understand that most people come into this country or other countries on visas, law abiding folks, they're not going to pose a problem. But for anybody who thinks that countries don't need some sort of control on their borders, look at what happened Look at what happened in Stockholm just the other day. All right, coming up in just a couple minutes, it's Follow the Brewers at 910, and immediately after that, what's going on with United Airlines? 859, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. All right, I I want to switch gears. Let Let me back into this story. Chances are, if you have flown any time in the last several years, you have been presented with a situation where the flight is overbooked. Nowadays, airlines have cut back on the number of flights. I don't remember the last flight I was on that wasn't completely and totally sold out. I I, I just don't. And sometimes what happens is the flight ends up getting overbooked. For instance, a week ago Sunday, we were coming back from Las Vegas. And get to the gate. I was flying southwest. Get to the gate, and the gate agent says, we are in a potential overbooking situation, and we're looking for, in this case, we just want, we're looking for a volunteer um, who will be willing to give up their seat, and what we'll do is we'll give you a 300, I was on an early flight, it was like 8.30 in the morning, we'll give you a $300 voucher, and we'll put you on like a later flight. Now, I know that there are people who live for that. I, I, I almost never do, and I, it wasn't 
It wasn't in the cards on, on Sunday. I mean, I was with somebody. They were only offering one. But secondly, I had to make sure I was going to get back. We had the big opening day thing, and I have a feeling our general manager and our program director would not have been happy if I said, well, I, I, uh, you know, I, I gave up my seat on the early-in-the-day flight, and then something happened later on. So, I mean, I, it wasn't in a position where I was going to take advantage of that. And ultimately, they must have found somebody because it, it never went on. If you've ever been in an airport when this is going on, what typically happens is they make an initial offer, and then if nobody takes it, they kind of sweeten the offer and sweeten the offer and sweeten the offer. All right, which leads me to what happened yesterday afternoon at O'Hare. This involves a United flight that was flying from Chicago to Louisville yesterday afternoon. Now, There's not apparently a lot of flights on United that go from Chicago to Louisville. So it wasn't a situation where if you get on, if you give up your spot on the 3 o'clock flight yesterday, we're going to be able to put you on a 6 o'clock flight. So the next next available flight apparently was today. So if you gave up your seat, you were going to have to be in a hotel and you'd have to be in Chicago for another day. So anyway, here's the story. So passengers on this flight from Chicago to Louisville show up. And as they get there, they are told at the gate that the flight was overbooked and that United was offering $400 and a hotel stay um, for one volunteer to take another flight to Louisville at 3 o'clock the next day. That would be Monday. So nobody, nobody takes advantage of it. Passengers are allowed to board the flight. So they let people get on the flight and people sit in their seats. So imagine this is you, you're, you know, you're, you've got your ticket, you've made arrangements, you are on the flight, you are sitting in the seat. Once everybody was on the flight, the United people come on the plane and they say, okay, here's the deal. We now need four people to give up our seats to stand by United employees that needed to be in Louisville on Monday for a flight. So this is Sunday afternoon. The flight is full. People who have paid money for their tickets are now sitting in their seats. And then the United comes on and says, okay, we need four of you to give up your seats because we have like a flight crew. We had four United flight crew people, and we need to get them to Louisville for a flight tomorrow. So what they say is that, okay, we're going to sweeten the offer. Um, we'll give you $800 in flight credits, and we'll put you up overnight. So now they've upped it from 300 to $800 for, for people to give up their seats. Nobody volunteers. Nobody volunteers. So then what they do is they say, all right, we are not, this flight is not leaving. This plane is not leaving the ground until four of you Give up your seats so the United employees can be on this. Four of you. Nobody volunteers. So then they say, here's what we're going to do. Um, A manager then comes aboard the plane and says, if nobody volunteers, we are just going to have a computer randomly select four people. And those four people will be bumped off the plane. All right. Nobody volunteers. So they, they then, they apparently spin the wheel of passengers they are going to get tossed off. One couple comes up, their names, and they, they then leave the plane. Okay, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, you guys off the plane. They, they leave. Um, then 
Another guy's name comes up. Okay, you're off. The guy says, I'm not leaving. He says, I'm a doctor. I have I have patients that I'm supposed to see in the hospital tomorrow morning. I've had this ticket forever. I need to get home. I'm not getting off the plane for a flight crew. At which point in time they say, yes, you are. And if you don't get off the plane, security is going to be called. He says, I'm not getting off the plane. I'm calling my lawyer. If you want to see what happens next, go to WTMJ.com. And on our main page, we have a story. Screaming man dragged off plane by uniformed officials. Because that's what United does. One security official came on, spoke with the guy. He said, I'm not leaving. Another security officer came on. He refused to leave. A third security officer came on the plane, threw the passenger against the armrest, and they dragged him off the plane. Now, the way this turns out, he's screaming. He's calling his lawyer. Ultimately, apparently, the man was able to get off the plane after back on the plane after initially being taken off. His face was bloody. He seemed disoriented. Um, passengers asked to get off the plane as the medical crew came up to deal with the passenger. Um, passengers were then told to go back to the gate so that officials could tidy up the plane before taking off. One of the other people on the plane who videoed this said everybody was shocked and appalled. There were several children on the flight that were very upset. The flight was delayed um, around two hours before it could fly to Louisville. I don't know if the United crew ever got on the plane, but they physically dragged a doctor, a guy at least who said he was a doctor, off the plane because he refused to give up his seat to a standby crew member. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. I cannot believe that United Airlines handled this in this particular fashion. And if this is how United Airlines does business, it makes me wonder why anybody in their right mind would fly United Airlines. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Your reaction to this story, United said we needed the seats because we had to get a we had four employees that we had to get from Chicago to Louisville. So all you people who had paid for your tickets, you've got to give up those seats for our crew. 414-799-1620, that's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. How do you think United handled it? I can't imagine I can't imagine handling a situation like this worse. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. 919, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Nine twenty one, Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. United Airlines dry, drags a guy who says he's a doctor, kicking and screaming, off an airplane because it's an overbooking situation. They can't find volunteers to give up their seats, and the reason they need to toss four people off the plane randomly is because they've got a flight crew that's got a flight out of Louisville the next day, and they want to get them there at the expense of the paying passengers. Rob in Burlington. Rob, you're first. Good morning. Um, I think this is absolutely absurd and totally mismanaged. I mean, you're talking Chicago to Louisville. About 300 miles. Yeah, it's not like a New York to Las Vegas. The two-hour delay, I mean, you could have been halfway to Louisville from Chicago. It's only a a four-and-a-half-hour drive, for goodness sake. Yeah. (laughs) 
it's just ridiculous that they did this, and it kind of shows the true colors of this airline, and it makes me rethink purchasing tickets with them. Well, and, I, and thanks to Carl, I think that's a fair comment here. I mean, you're, you're, that, that's the first thing I thought of. Okay, Chicago to Louisville is about 300 miles. I understand that, you know, this you, you offer the people who have paid the money. I mean, I thought the whole notion of standby was you wait to see if there is an opening, and then, then you get on. So, I mean, I, I understand the fact that this was the most convenient way to get the flight crew to Louisville. I get all that. But if, when you have the paying customers who refuse, the idea that you are going to eject four of the paying customers against their will instead of renting a car – and having the flight crew drive the five hours or whatever it's going to take to get you to Louisville, all right, that, or um, on our text line, um, Neil writes, it's hard to believe that United does not have a small jet to fly a crew and a couple passengers. Yeah, I mean, you would, you, you would think that there are all sorts of other different alternatives. I do not fault United Airlines for, again, trying to entice people to you know, leave the flight. But I understand from a passenger's perspective, I mean, I'm, again, I was trying to put myself in that place. Let us say that I was on this flight out of Las Vegas um, last week, and, I mean, I had to get back. I was hosting our opening day show. It's a big deal. So if I was on an afternoon flight and they came on and they said we're an overbooked situation and we're going to randomly start tossing people off, and, by the way, we don't have a flight till the next afternoon, I understand. I would be mad as you know what if something like that happened. And th- the fact that you then bring on three security people to physically remove this man, and I don't care whether he's a doctor that needs to see patients or whether he's a grandfather that you know needs to get back to see his kids or whatever it doesn't matter he paid for the tickets to bump him and to physically drag him off the plane simply because you wanted the space for a flight crew for the flight the next day is absolutely appalling. And it ended up not working anyways, because as far as I can tell, after creating this entire disruption, after injuring this guy, because everybody said his face was bloody, they ultimately let him back on the plane. The plane was delayed by for two hours. You have the passengers that were completely and totally disrupted. This is... When it comes to crisis management, this is about as bad a way as you could possibly handle it. And the fact that United decided to put its flight crew, who was flying standby, ahead of the interest of paying passengers, tells you, I think, a lot about United Airlines. And maybe that a lot is, if you have choices when it comes to flying, maybe you want to avoid an airline that would do this to its passengers. It's 925. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 927, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Coming up in less than 10 minutes, a transgender employee is suing Wisconsin and the UW system saying taxpayers should pay for a sex change operation. We will discuss how likely is it that air pollution can play a role in infant developing autism or ADHD. One UWM researcher is heading a major initiative that examines the cause and effect. She'll join Wisconsin's Afternoon News at 3.50 today. Okay, Jane Matinair, I know if you heard the story. Guy, guy is in, he is in a casino, 
And it's in Fort Lauderdale. It's one of these Indian casinos. It's the Seminole Hard Rock Hotel and Casino. The same folks that wanted to open up a casino down at Dairyland. Sure. And he's feeding money, 66-year-old guy, he's feeding money into a, a slot machine. Now, <clears throat> he's there with a, a female friend. And what he says, he says, I'm not very lucky here. You, you push the button. So he puts the money in. You know, in that slot machine, you don't pull the arm anymore. You just kind of push a button. She pushes the button. It hits. <laughs> it hits, and it pays $100,000. Nice. Okay, well, no, not necessarily. All right, now, it's his money. He's playing the slot machine, but he says to the 35-year-old woman, here, you, you push it. Whose money is it? Well, I would think it would be his. No, no, no. The, the button pusher. No, it is the button. It is the button pusher, not the person who paid for it. So what what happens is so okay, the guy is paying for this. He says to his friend, "You push the button." So even though it's his money, she pushes the button. Bells and whistles going off. He's like celebrating. The the casino people come down, and she immediately says, "Wait a second! I'm the one that pushed the button. This is my jackpot." He says. No, it was my money. I was playing the machine. I asked you to do this. She says no. And so they go back and forth. They check the surveillance camera, and they find out that she was the one that pushed the button. And under the, the rules and law, it's, parents, it's whoever pushed the button that gets the money. So she gets the hundred grand, and he gets squadoosh. <laughs> Wouldn't a good friend split the money? Well, yeah, now, I don't know how good of friends they were, but no, that's 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 exactly right. He's going, but, 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 but. She's going, hey, I push the button. The officials say, no, that's the law. It's whoever pulls the lever, whoever pushes the button, you're the one that's responsible for the spin. Um, he says, how could you do that to me? And she kind of says, well, it was $100,000. So she gets the money. There is a lesson here. <laughs> I guess there, there there is a lesson here. Don't to, gamble. <laughs> well, that that could be one. Or if you do gamble, and you decide that you're going to, you know, let somebody else, um, you know, push that button, it then at least at least in Florida, it becomes there. It's whoever pushes the button. So she gets a hundred thousand dollars. But maybe your lesson, maybe the bigger lesson is don't gamble. Maybe that's exactly it. But. Or, or at least, if you're going to let somebody push the button, make sure that they'll split it with you or give you the money or, you know, apparently they were not, obviously they weren't married, so it wasn't community property. But that, I, just, I can imagine, I do kind of put myself in the perspective of the guy. You know, he's been feeding all this, these probably quarters into the slot machine or whatever it is and losing, losing, losing. Here, hon, you just take a shot. She hits it and then she just takes off on him and takes the hundred grand. It's a heck of a world. Coming up in just a couple minutes, speaking of it's a heck of a world, transgender employees suing Wisconsin, that means us, the state, because state will not pay for um, gender change surgery, sex change surgery. We will talk about that in just a minute. It's 935, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, with the print industry constantly changing. Milwaukee Magazine is always looking for ways to stay fresh. Editor-in-Chief Carol Nixon takes Colleen Boland behind the scenes in the latest of our WTMJ Conversations series. Check out the full discussion online at WTMJ.com and on the WTMJ mobile app. All right, just because you have health insurance doesn't mean that everything is covered. For example, I have a friend who has been in Mexico for the last couple weeks with his brother. And, and without going into you know too much detail, um, his brother has a medical condition. And the, the only treatment 
that the, the treatment he is undergoing is, is, as a general rule, it's not available in the United States, um, at least for somebody of, of his age. And so he, he is in Mexico, and he's going to be in Mexico for three weeks or four weeks or whatever getting this treatment. There's a little hospital and medical community, and he needs somebody to go with him. So my friend, you know, he, he's there with his brother. That's a very, very nice thing to do. Okay, these procedures that they are, are going through, these medical procedures that apparently have a great success rate, but they don't do them in the United States on somebody of my friend's brother's age, um, are very, very expensive. They have a good success rate. They're very expensive, and they are not covered by insurance for for whatever for whatever reasons. It's viewed as an experimental treatment or whatever. And even though there is the success rate, I mean, they are my my friend's brother presumably is paying for this out of pocket, and they told me how much it costs, and it's just it's a mind blowing thing. I mean, a lot of people I don't I don't know where, I don't know where the money comes from, but but that's what they're doing. But the point is, not everything is covered by every insurance policy. Now, if you ever have, if you ever have to go through a catastrophic situation like like cancer, or you have a loved one who goes through this, I mean, trust me, you spend a lot of time, you know, dealing with with the doctors and the hospitals and the insurance company, and some policies, some insurers, and some policies, it just varies. It varies from policy to policy and company to company as to what is going to be covered. But the truth is, not everything is covered under different insurance policies, which brings me to the story. There are two transgender employees. Um, one is a UW School of Madison, a school, UW School of Medicine, this is UW Research Assistant, um, who was born a male and identifies as a female and wanted to have gender transition surgery. The other is a UW-Madison graduate student and teaching um, assistant in anthropology who, again, was born as a male, identifies as a female, and wants to have gender transition surgery, the, the, the procedures to essentially you know, change them from, from male into a, a female. They say they're both covered by UW's insurance plan, which would be the state taxpayer-supported you know, plan. They say, hey, we paid into premiums. They, they put in for this. They say, okay, we want this approved, and UW um, says no. I mean, the system says no. Um, this is not going to be covered. Now, one, the UW School of Medicine research assistant paid for um, her own gender transition surgery and is seeking to be reimbursed for that. The graduate student and teaching assistant um, has delayed this procedure because, again, the insurance won't cover it. Now, this is a story because, um, historically, the state has declined to cover gender transition surgery. Well, on Friday, these two transgender University of Wisconsin employees sued the state, and that would be they're suing the taxpayers, um, in federal court over the fact that their insurance policy didn't cover gender transition um, surgery. Um, they're joined by the American, our friends at the ACLU. The argument, this is what the attorneys say, as a result of state policies, 
the plaintiff's health insurance plans single out transgender employees for unequal treatment by categorically depriving them of all medical care for gender, gender dysphoria, a serious medical condition codified in the etc., etc. So um, they are suing. The state's position, as expressed by you know the governor's spokesperson, is we believe the policy adopted by the state is a reasonable measure that protects taxpayers from funding sex changes for state employees and complies with both federal and state law. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Insurance frequently will not cover various procedures. You know, it just depends on your insurance plan and what you are paying for. Like I say, you know, sometimes, and maybe you can relate to this, maybe you've gone through this, maybe you've had a loved one who's had to deal with, again, a catastrophic illness like a cancer or something like that, and it found that for certain types of of coverage, you know, it's just not covered for certain types of procedures. So your choice is you have to pay for it out of your own pocket or you have to forego it. Um, These two UW employees say that the taxpayers should have to pay for their sex change surgeries. 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Toll uh, Talk and Text Line. The governor is saying, nope, we haven't paid for this, and we, we believe we're on firm legal ground. Should the state have to cover this procedure? I say no. And if if you wanted to have that covered, well, okay, maybe maybe there's lots of employers that have policies that cover this. But do you have an absolute right to have this covered? No. No more than my friend's brother has an absolute right to have whatever procedure he's now having done in Mexico covered by insurance. 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. It's 942. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. 945. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. He's at the forefront of Wisconsin's fight against the opioid epidemic. And next Wednesday night, April 19th, you'll get a chance to gain insight on the battle he is waging across the state. This is a very, very big deal. And if you've got teenage kids or kids that are going to be teenagers, um, you, you want to have an opportunity to hear Attorney General Brad Schimmel. He's going to join me at the Country Springs Hotel for Insight 2017. It is a topic that hits close to home for many, and it's a night you won't want to miss. Tickets available now online at WTMJ.com. It's Insight 2017, Wednesday, April 19th. Go online to get your tickets today. We've got a lot of great things going on at Insight, but um, listening to the Attorney General talk about the opioid abuse problem is something that should be near and dear to every parent's heart. Heard we just had that spot for David Hobbs Hunt. I went into David Hobbs on Saturday afternoon, one o'clock, bought a car. It just it, I walked in the door. I, I knew what I, I said. I want to buy a car. I knew what I wanted. I said I checked their website. I said you, you have two of these cars in the category I'm looking for. This is the one I want. Do you have it? They did. And we were able to make a deal. Let's pick it up this afternoon. Okay. Here here is the story. There are two UW system employees who were born male. They identify as female. They want to have gender surgery. They want to have the the sex change surgery. Um, The UW, the state says, no, we don't cover this. One has already had the surgery, um, now wants the taxpayers to pay. Another one who's a graduate student says, "I, I can't afford to have it. They've now filed a lawsuit saying it should be covered 
I say no. <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I, I mean, it, this to me is a matter of negotiation. And if UW wants to extend the insurance policy to cover sex change operations, that's fine. But should they automatically have to? I say no. 414-799-1620. Mike on the northwest side. Mike, you're first. Good morning. Hey, uh, good morning, Jeff. Yeah, I uh, think uh, that this is a uh, matter of uh, personal electives. Uh, if you have cancer or heart disease or something like that, that's a major disease, uh, yes, that should be covered by insurance. But this seems more like a personal elective thing. I know it's a disease that mm-hmm. people suffer. Well, it's a, right, a condi- yeah, it's a medical condition, but yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I mean, uh, going to your analogy of buying a car at David Hobbs, you know, you can go and get the new wardrobe uh, for cheaper on yourself or go for the whole ball of wax, but it's your choice. Well, right, I get, yeah, exactly. I guess I look at this, and I mean... To, to me, it, it's it, it's this idea that this has to be covered. I mean, now again, if you, if I, I, I've never investigated this. I don't know whether this procedure would be covered under the insurance policy that I our, our insurance policy we have at Scripps. If if that's if it is, that's fine. But then that's built into the cost of the premiums that we're paying. You know, for every procedure that they they cover for all these things, that's factored into the cost that people pay. And if if a company wants to offer this type of procedure as part of the covered things, well, that, that that's fine. They, they do it. But this idea that you have an automatic right to have that type of surgery covered, I just don't buy it. 414-799-1620. Glenn in Muskegon, Michigan. Glenn, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, Jeff. Good to talk to you again. Um, I just want to make the point that uh, if they... If taxpayers are forced to pay for this procedure, what other kind of procedures are we going to be forced to pay for? Um, know, when I was a eight-year-old boy, I wanted to be a dinosaur. <laughs> well, well, I mean, I don't know about that, but I mean, I think I mean it, it does. I mean, at, at what point in time do you? At at what point in time, and is there in fact a a limit on on these types of things? Like I say, if this is a big issue, you you can spell it out in the policy. If this is something that's like a covered procedure um, under the terms of the policy, well, then you can you know you you can make that case. But this argument, I mean, what they are saying is that um, that. You know, they're being denied uh, equal treatment. It's essentially kind of like a constitutional argument um, because this is not provided. Um, and, you know, th- this is the, the, the attorneys are saying, well, this is so terrible. They're, you know, they're paying into the plan. You know, they expect things to be covered. Well, OK, I don't expect everything to be covered. There are limits because that's what controls your costs going in. And this idea that, all right, you have to pay for it from the perspective of the taxpayers, I, I don't think so. And I think, you know, I think it's it's fine and it's good and it's appropriate for the state to stand up and say, hey, that this isn't something that is covered. Hey, if in the next round of negotiations or whatever, if state employees, this is a big deal that you want to have these sort of the sex change operations covered well okay you know then just so you understand your premiums are going to go up how big a deal is this clint in bayview clint good morning you're at 620 wtmj morning jeff thanks for taking my call yes sir i think this you know falls under cosmetic surgery i mean i get the fact that you know transgender people you know that's a medical thing they feel like they were born the wrong gender you know i i give you know empathy for them but i think to have a surgery to make everything physically 
uh, complete, I, I still think that that's cosmetic surgery. And if we're going to mandate this, you know, I mean, if there are female employees, you know, sorry, who feel like maybe uh, they should have been born with larger breasts, are we going to be paying for their procedures so that, you know, they can feel physically, you know, how they were well, well, right. Or, or, or are, um, or are some of these things? It is the fact that somebody, again, I'm just going to, or if the fact that you have somebody who is born, a woman who's born with smaller breasts, and feels, okay, this is causing, you know, all sorts of problems. You know, should we play? Does that mean it's causing her mental, you know, anguish because she has smaller breasts, or you know, guys that have smaller body parts, or, or whatever? Right. At, at what, you know, at what point in time does that kick in? Now, thanks, and see, and that's, I guess, that's that to me is is the issue here, I have no problem with an insurance policy choosing to cover it, but you have to pay for that. And I, I think, you know, this this is this is one of these these choices that, you know, you decide to make as opposed to a medical condition. I think automatic is it a medical situation? Absolutely. But is it something that automatically has to be covered? No, because not all forms of medical treatment Get coverage. Ask the brother of guy I know who's down in Mexico paying for whatever his treatment is out of his own pocket. William in Rockton, Illinois. William, you're on 620 WTMJ. Thank you. It seems like it comes down to definitions of what insurance actually is. If he has a mental disorder that he thinks he's a female, then let's treat the mental disorder. Um, that's pretty much it, I guess. But right, you, right, or, right. As opposed to as opposed to the actual surgery itself. And if you want to have the surgery, like the the one person did, okay, you you pay for it out of pocket. You know, you 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 handle that, and and that's fine. No, I I think so. I mean, I, that's I think that's the way the state looks at it. And I understand that this is you get this argument. Oh, it's you know you're transgender phobic or whatever. No, to me, it's just a contractual matter, and and insurance covers certain things and there's certain things that insurance does not cover and for everybody that thinks insurance could, could cover everything and every procedure that's fine but then don't turn around and complain about medical costs going up because for every one of the things that's driving insurance premium coverage uh, increases under Obamacare, for example, and I understand we're not talking about gender transition surgery, is the fact that now there are all these mandates. You know, this has to be covered. That has to be covered. There's a whole list of basic things that we tell insurers that you have to provide, um, and you have to provide them with, like, no deductible or for free. That is a change from the way we used to do business. And so the the insurers will say, okay, fine, you know, we, we have to provide the stuff that used to be subject, the annual physical. Now it's, you know, it's free. It's not subject to any free, I mean, to the, the person who gets the annual physical, not free to the, the doctors or not free to the insurance company. But when you do that, when you say, okay, this is, you know, we want you to have that yearly physical and you don't have to pay a deductible for that. All right, that, that adds cost on and that drives cost up. That's the factor. And again, if the insurance policy... If it doesn't cover this, I think the state is on solid footing. And this idea that, well, you know, you've you've paid into it, so you get to have, you should automatically have all your medical needs treated. No, that's not how insurance works. 955, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It's 957, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, so the, the woman I am seeing has six sisters. Jane, she's got six six sisters. You know who are all 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 married, and I had met three of them and their husbands before. Yesterday, 
All right, uh, the oldest of sisters was having a birthday party, and so the, the one I'm seeing hosted at her her place. So it's 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 me and her, and it's her six sisters and their their husbands and stuff. And it was just it was, and of course I'm trying to make a good impression and oh, stuff. Really you know, I'm, I'm trying to do my. It, it was it was a lot of fun. We had a great time. But the sisters are all across the political spectrum. Some are very conservative and some are, are very liberal. So um, one, one of the sisters, Mary Kay, this is you, I, her, her husband is very conservative and, and she isn't. And so she's telling me this story. She says she, she comes down to breakfast one morning, not that long ago, and her husband is listening to my show. And she says, I can't believe this guy is saying this. This, this is, And he says, well, just so you know, that's the guy you know your sister is dating. <laughs> and she says, she says, well, I really like him, but I can't believe he, he's saying that. So I told her, I said, well, be, Mary Kay, be listening tomorrow because I've got a topic that I, I know that you're going to have exactly that same reaction to, that you're going to be screaming, I can't believe, I like him, but I can't believe he's saying that. So coming up. Coming up in less than ten minutes, it is my topic for my. <laughs> it is my topic for you, Mary Kay. It is um, Scott Walker. Scott Walker has done something that has some people absolutely up in arms. I think he is doing the right thing. So stick around. It's nine fifty nine. Jeff Wagner, six twenty WTMJ. It's ten oh eight. This is Jeff Wagner. So glad to have you with us. Three years ago, in Wisconsin, the the legislature, with the governor's blessing, changed the law. The law used to say that school had to be in session for 180 days each year. And a lot of school boards and uh, a lot of uh, folks that were associated with the education system lobbied to change that. They said, you know, it, it's the 180 days. There, there's nothing magic about 180 days, and that 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 constrains us you know what about if you've got like heavy duty snow days or things like that you know that that gives us problems and they left it up to individual you know districts now it might be that an individual school district would decide we're going to have class 180 days a year or whatever but but it eliminated the state mandate it however kept in place a a state law which requires instructional hours there's there's not a mandate on the number of days that you have to be in session. But right now, current law calls for Wisconsin to provide at least 1,050 instructional hours for first through sixth graders and at least 1,137 hours, instructional hours, from seventh through twelfth graders. Now, instructional hours, um, this means, it means actual class time. It means time, you know, in in the classroom. Um, it, it doesn't include, for example, um, if you've got kids that are studying for advanced placement tests or whatever, and there's reading assignments, even like heavy duty reading assignments. It doesn't count the time that they spend outside of class doing the reading. It's just a mandatory in class hour. One of the things that Governor Walker is trying to push is just like three years ago, they eliminated the actual, the mandate, the state mandate of 180 actual days in school. Now what he wants to do is eliminate the mandate that there be these minimum hours, the 1,050 instructional hours for first through sixth graders and the 1,137 instructional hours for, for seventh through twelfth graders. And the idea behind this is essentially to give 
school districts that flexibility as to how to you know deal with these things. Some administrators want flexibility because, like they say, for example, advanced placement courses require students to read books before the school year starts. Schools don't get credit for that kind of learning time um, under state law. The idea is that by doing this, you will encourage school districts to develop perhaps more flexible ways of approaching education that better meet the needs of their students. Now, there is no, there is no requirement that that a school lower the num- that a school district lower the number of instructional hours this would simply give the school district the flexibility to do that so if they say hey you know we we think we can accomplish everything we need to accomplish in 1100 hours as opposed to 1137 hours for 7th through 12th graders we want the flexibility to be able to do this all right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I'm in favor of this. I, I am all about trying to figure out the best way to educate kids in 2017. And I, I think rather than having the state-mandated minimum requirements of you have to be in school this number of days or you have to be you know in class this many hours – I think what we need to do is we need to encourage flexibility, and we need to give school districts and administrators the right to try to figure out, okay, what is the best way to do this without necessarily tying them to arbitrary standards. Now, again, it might be that in a particular school district they say, hey, no, the way the way we think it's best to do this is all kids have to be in class for 180 days and they have to have these minimum hours. Well, that's fine. The school district could still choose to do that. But if another school district comes up with a different idea saying, hey, you know, we think maybe there's a better mousetrap, I don't have a problem with that. On top of that, then the question becomes, all right, how do you – how do you handle it? I mean, how can you tell whether a school district whether a school district is just kind of blowing this off and that the kids aren't learning? Well, um, I, I think candidly and what the governor says, and I agree with him, our state report cards are the best ways to hold schools accountable. So if you have a school district that, for example, decides we're going to go down to 1,100 hours from 1,137, then you have these state report cards that come in and show that the educational quality is, is decreasing – well, okay, maybe you know then that there is some sort of an issue. But the, the truth of the matter is we have some public schools and some public school systems that do very well. We have some systems that do not do well. And I think we need to give the administrators, we need to give the teachers, we need to give the educational professionals the the, the flexibility to figure out what works best for them. And, again, I, I'll go back to the example of advanced placement courses. You know, if, if you've got kids – that before the school year are assigned, hey, you know, in order to, you know, take these tests or whatever, you know, you've got 10 or 15 hours of reading that you have to do. All right, why does that necessarily, why don't you get credit for that? Why shouldn't you be able to do that, for example, before the school year starts, as opposed to saying, okay, we're going to have the kids sitting in the class actually reading these books? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is this... Is this, and the Washington Post had a big story about this Sunday, which is why I'm bringing it up, about how, well, the headline in the Washington Post story, Walker wants Wisconsin to be the first state to stop dictating how much time kids should go to school. 
That's the way they choose to spin it. Is this, is that it? Is this, again, we're selling out education, or is this a good idea to give school districts the option to maybe figure out, maybe there's a way to build a better mousetrap when it comes to learning. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. What do you think? I think, hey, let's give it a try, or at least let's give school districts the right to give it a try. 1015, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It is 1018, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Let's see. There's one Milwaukee industry with over 2,000 open positions. What is it, and how can you fill one of them? Get the answer at 420 this afternoon on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Okay, the Washington Post decides to take a shot at Governor Walker um, over the weekend. Actually, I think it appeared in their Sunday paper. Walker wants Wisconsin to be the first state to stop dictating how much time kids should go to school. Um, Right now, there are mandatory hours that kids have to have. It's 1,050 for elementary schools and essentially 1,137 hours for 7th grade and up. What Walker would say is, the proposal would be, hey, schools get to decide for themselves. And if a school thinks that they can accomplish what they need to accomplish in 1,100 hours instead of 1,137 hours, why not? Now, of course, you've got a lot of the critics, and the long knives are out. This is another Scott Walker's attack on education and things like that. And and I say no. I mean, let's give schools a degree of flexibility that allows them to decide what's best for their particular students. And if they decide that they want to have kids in class for 180 days and they want to have 1,137 hours of instruction, fine. But if they think there's a better way to build the mousetrap, why not? Now, our first text on the text line says, you know, who, you know, who, who benefits this? What's, why are they pushing this? Well, I mean, if you were going to be a cynic, you would say, okay, this is – this is an effort to cut costs or things like that. I mean, because, I mean, theoretically, if you reduce the hours of instruction, does that mean the teachers are working less and you can cut costs? I, I don't think that that's what it's all about. I think, rather, what's going on here is, again, an effort to try to recognize that the way, the, the way things work in 2017 is different than the way things worked in 1977. The way kids learn in 2017 is different than the way we learned in 1977. And given all the technology that's out there, given the abilities for learning, and given the opportunities to learn outside of of the classroom, I mean, the days of automatically having to be in the classroom for, for example, a study hall where the teacher, you know, walks up and down and makes sure everybody's, you know, reading the particular book, I, I think... That's gone the way of the horse and buggy. I think in many respects, at least, it's gone the way of the horse and buggy. So this gives school districts that option. And I think you let school districts try it. If it doesn't work, okay, it, it doesn't work. If the kids start doing worse on different tests or whatever by any objective measure, okay, then the school board presumably is going to be smart enough to recognize that we tried this, it's not working, we need to go back to some of the more traditional things. But give them a chance, see how it all works, and if it works, great, kids are learning. If it doesn't work, at least you know it. But 
isn't that what we should be all about? Trying to figure out the best ways that kids can, in fact, learn things. All right. We have been telling you for a couple weeks, Insight 2017, a week from this coming Wednesday. So that's nine days at the Country Springs Hotel. We have a, a great guest list. Governor Walker is going to be joining me. We're going to be talking about a lot of stuff, including um, some of the controversies that he finds himself currently embroiled in. We're going to be talking entertainment things. We've got Joe Bartolotto. We've got Bob Babish and Don Smiley from Summerfest. We've got three justices from the state Supreme Court, and there's certainly been that share of controversy involving the state Supreme Court. Um, a number of other guests as well. The list are at WTMJ.com. The most recent addition is, of course, um, Attorney General Brad Schimmel, who is one of the leaders in the country when it comes to fighting opioid abuse, particularly among young people. Um, we've seen just an absolute explosion of heroin addiction and deaths due to heroin. And we're going to be talking about uh, to Brad about what, what has fueled that and, in particular, what parents can do to be aware of signs and things like that. So that in and of itself is worth the minimal price of admission. So that's Insight 2017. It's coming up Wednesday, April 19th at the Country Springs Hotel. I have a four-pack of tickets to give away. Let's give them to caller number 14 at the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line, which is 414-799-1620. Caller 14 wins an opportunity for free tickets to go see Insight 2017 a week from Wednesday at the Country Springs Hotel. It's 1023. This is Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. How did he become the only governor in American history to win a recall election? What was it like to go toe-to-toe with Donald Trump on the presidential debate platform? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, Governor Scott Walker sits down with me next Wednesday night. That is a week from Wednesday, and you can be there to see it live. It's Inside 2017 at the Country Springs Hotel in Pewaukee, Wednesday night, April 19th. Tickets are available now. Get them before they're gone. Go online at WTMJ.com. Kelly in Menominee Falls wins a four-pack of tickets. Looking forward to seeing you a week from Wednesday. Kelly, keep listening. We'll have more chances to win some tickets to see Insight a week from Wednesday night. All right. I continue to believe that 10 years from now, if Martians land in Cathedral Square in downtown Milwaukee, you know, the spaceship lands, comes down, sets down, and the Martians get out and they start walking around the east side of Milwaukee, they are going to see Tom Barrett's streetcar, Tom's trolley folly, and they're going to be watching the streetcar that goes slowly down the street with nobody riding it. And then the Martians are going to say, what, what, what explain to us the, the streetcar? And then somebody's going to say, well, no, this was Tom Barrett, who used to be the mayor of the city of Milwaukee. This was his idea, and this was his legacy. He wanted to figure out how to get people to move between the bus depot and the Lower East Side. And so he was willing to commit a hundred plus million dollars in, in money to build this, this streetcar. And then the Martians would say, well, wait, streetcars? 
What this is that you built this in two thousand, you know, seventeen and two thousand eighteen? Weren't streetcars around like at the turn of the twentieth century? And people would we'd say no to the Martians. Yes, that that's what they were. But but this the, the mayor the mayor wanted to go back to technology that was antiquated, you know, a hundred years earlier. And then the Martians would say, "Excuse me, how much did you say that this was going to cost?" Well, you know, it cost over a hundred million dollars, and of course, it didn't come close to paying for itself. So you had to have all these operating costs that were in addition to that. And then the Martians would just kind of shake their head, I think, get back into their spaceship and start heading back to Mars, convinced that there's no intelligent life on on Earth, or at least there's no intelligent life in the city of Milwaukee. I bring this up because it's happening. Here's the way the Journal Sentinel reporting it. Rails for the Milwaukee streetcar are now being welded together, and route construction is on track to begin next week. Sparks were flying as crews welded 80-foot sticks of steel into streetcar rails as long as 320 feet. It's like opening day, Milwaukee Mayor Tom Barrett told the students. Well, Tom, it is like opening day. If opening day is County Stadium in 1974, it's 23 degrees and you have sleet and snow. That That's the kind of opening day it is. Um, five companies have submitted proposals to operate the streetcar. Barrett says the streetcar plays a key role in his overall vision for the city, to which I would say, If the streetcar is a key element in the mayor's overall vision for the city, God help the city of Milwaukee. All right. All right. Explain to me what the streetcar does to stop the fact that crime is rampant across the city, that people on the northwest side can't leave their homes unattended to go to work or, Lord forbid, on a three- or four-day vacation because their homes are going to get broken into, that you can't drive east-west streets or north-south streets in the city without being worried that you're going to be the victim of a carjacking, that you can't walk across the street, even crossing with the light intersections, for fear that you're going to be hit by a... um, by, by a hit-and-run driver who's going to take off. Okay, if you've got an overall vision of the city, Mayor, um, maybe what you need to do is figure out where your priorities are. But the streetcar, key role in the overall vision for the city, despite the fact that many of us have been warning them, um, it, it is going to go ahead. And, again, I predict... Ten years from now, when Tom Barrett is long gone, you're going to see what happens in Milwaukee, what is happening in other cities across the country, where people go, what What were we thinking? And the justification is going to be, well, of course nobody rides it, because it only goes from the bus depot to the Lower East Side. So what we need to do is we need to spend hundreds of millions of dollars more to try to expand it in the hope that we might get somebody to ride it. This is crazy. It has been crazy all along, and it is happening. And there's some alderman in the city of Milwaukee who supported this, who I think are going to have some explaining to do a few years from now, especially when those Martians land and wonder if there's intelligent life in the city of Milwaukee. It's 1035, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Yeah, we've kind of 
updated the bumper music, going back to the music of my life, Smuggler's Blues by Glenn Fry. Can't go wrong with that. From losing 12 of 14 to a possible fifth seed in the playoffs, the Bucks' turnaround has been remarkable. Yeah, considering where they were last year, it has. And also considering they lost Jabari Parker, what's the best case matchup for the team in the first round? Greg Matzik dives into the playoff picture. Tune in at 6.07 this afternoon on Sports Central. All right, this, this is... It is every parent's nightmare. But the question becomes, what happens when this happens? This is a story that comes from the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, the lovely community of Marquette, Michigan. I love Marquette, Michigan. I used to used to spend a couple weeks every summer up there when I was in high school at the University, Northern Michigan University, which is in Marquette, Michigan. August, Marquette, Michigan is just absolutely beautiful. Don't know about October, November, December, January, February, March, or April, but August in Marquette, Michigan, just absolutely beautiful. All right, here's here's what happens. There's an 11-year-old boy. His name is Tyson Benz. He has a 13-year-old girlfriend. What happens is he comes home from school, March 14th, so going on a month ago. He comes home, and he's... Sees mom. He's apparently in kind of a good mood. Um, goes up, goes up to you know his room um, later that day. Um, mom, you know, says, "Hey, you know, I, I I presume he's upstairs. He's playing on his phone. You know, doing the internet, watching TV, or whatever." Mom goes up um, to check on him and finds out that the eleven-year-old has hung himself. Oh my God! Can you just imagine this? So they start trying to figure out what happened. Well, apparently, he believed. He hanged himself, apparently, because his 13-year-old girlfriend had allegedly faked her death in what turns out to be an online prank. Here's the way authority, this is what authorities end up, say, happening. Um, everybody is on social media nowadays. So apparently Tyson, the 11-year-old, is up in his room and he's texting or Snapchatting with a person that he thought was his girlfriend's friend. I don't know what the girlfriend's name is. She's 13 years old. Let's say it's Sally. So you know he's texting or Snapchatting with somebody he thought was Sally's friend. He reads a post that says that Sally, or whatever her name is, his girlfriend, had committed suicide. Oh, my God. He then sends a text saying, well, if she's gone, I can't live without her. He's 11 years old. Um, I'm going to kill myself, too. Um, the people who are involved in this, now this, as it turns out, is a prank. The person who wrote the post saying Sally is dead, the girlfriend is dead, was actually the girlfriend who had borrowed her friend's account, pretended to be the friend, and faked her own death. So this is the 13-year-old playing a prank on the 11-year-old boyfriend. The 11-year-old boyfriend reads this and thinks that his girlfriend, his 13-year-old girlfriend, has now killed herself. Um, he then sends a message back saying, I can't live without her. If that's the case, I'm going to kill myself. And those that are involved in the prank never text him back to say it's a joke. None of them either, nobody else, like, calls his mother or calls you know anybody else or does anything to let him know that they've now gotten this response back from the young man who says, I, I'm, I'm going to kill myself. 
Um, the mom, his mom, who is not happy, said she used her friend's account to make it look like she died. Even when he said he was going to kill himself, she didn't say, I'm just kidding. She just left it alone. Um, this is, of course, you know, a classic example, the extreme example of this, what they're describing as, as cyberbullying. Authorities have now gotten involved, and the 13-year-old has been charged with, with a crime. She's been charged with Something about malicious use of telecommunication services, punishable by up to six months in juvenile detention, and using a computer to commit a crime, which carries up to a year in punishment, both are are misdemeanors. So they've charged the girl with crimes in connection with this fake posting on the Internet. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, this is a tragic sort of situation, There's, and this is obviously every parent's nightmare. But, but here's the question. Should the 13-year-old be held criminally accountable? Is she criminally responsible for this, or was this just an unfortunate situation, a prank that got out of hand? Is this a crime? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next, and I'll tell you where I come down on this as well. But but what do you what do you think? There's a lot of this stuff that goes on on the internet. There's a lot of this pranking and punking or whatever. When something like this happens and it has this type of result, should in this case the thirteen year old girl be held criminally responsible? We discuss next. It's 1041. If you're on the line, please hold on. If you want to join us, 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. It's 1044. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Dave in Green Bay. Dave, good morning. Morning, Jeff. Uh, I was born and raised in Marquette, Michigan. Moved out of there when I was 22. Okay. <laughs> as far as this uh, uh, happening here, the 11-year-old, 13-year-old, uh, for one thing, boyfriend, girlfriend, 11, 13, I think that's wrong. But uh, as far as this girl, uh, they do stupid things. I've raised kids. They do stupid things, say things. But you got the, uh, you know, social media that gets out there, and these kids are extremely vulnerable to that mm-hmm. and take it very seriously. But I, I don't think the girl, uh, I, I just think it's something stupid she did. And I, and I think uh, the, mm-hmm. that should, you shouldn't. Well, I mean, I guess the, the see the question. It, it is, I mean, it is something that, that's stupid. My my guess is that this type of of well, that various forms of what I'm going to call pranking or punking or whatever go on on a regular basis. Now, in this case, this was this extreme sort of thing where you get this Romeo and Juliet thing. But 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 I guess the question becomes: Is this cyberbullying or was this just a a, a joke? And the other issue is, of course, for, for mom and dads out there, for everybody that, that thinks that this, this Internet is just this kind of like harmless thing, especially if you have a child that is clearly emotionally fragile. And I don't know the background too much of the 11-year-old, but obviously he is somewhat emotionally fragile. And I'm not blaming him for this, but you do make you do kind of wonder, okay, you know, mom, you know, if you've got a kid that's like this, you know, is it, do you just like send him up to the room and let him play on their phone for hours because of this potential that's there? Now, that does 
doesn't excuse the 13-year-old. Is Did she commit a crime? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Debbie writes on the text line, first, my sympathy to the family. Of course she should be responsible. What an awful prank to play. Let's talk to Chad in Milwaukee. Chad, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Morning, Jeff. Thanks for taking the call. Sure. Um, you know what? It, it's very touchy to me. Uh, should she be charged? I don't know. I mean... I, a lot of people, I could see how they would think that she should be because it's it's total unruly prank. But at the same time, the kids are relying too much on the Internet stuff. It, it's a toy instead of a tool that it's supposed to be. Right. Well, and I guess the, the other thing is if if instead of him, if she had done the same thing and instead of him hanging himself, he would have done something else out of grief that didn't result in him losing his life but something else that would have been bad would you have issued charges and my guess is my guess is probably not but but he did take this you know he did hang himself and take it seriously yes um yeah i don't um that's what's touchy about it um it, it was it was a bad prank but at the same time she didn't physically you know murder somebody or commit the crime um i don't know yeah the kids are just relying too much on on staring at this stuff all day. I would have, I mean, I can't believe the the eleven year old would have had him in it to do that. I would have investigated it further than what I read on right. somebody's Facebook or, or or whatever it was that he found it on. Yeah, I, I would have too. But I mean, th- but again, you're you're talking about a, an eleven year old who is obviously at best case scenario emotionally type of fragile. There, there's no question in my mind that the thirteen year old. Uh, this was just a, this was a mean girl joke. That's what this was. This wasn't an effort to. I, I mean, I think I, I I do believe that they didn't in, tr- intend to induce him to kill himself. This was kind of this mean girl joke. I don't know why anybody thinks it's funny to pretend to fake your own death. I mean, I what why you thought this was going to be funny or whatever. I I don't I I don't know. But is it a crime? Let's talk to Angeline in Milwaukee. Good morning. You're at six twenty WTMJ. How are you doing? I'm well, thank you. What do you think about all this? Well, I just want to put a real realistic uh, input on this. Sure. It was, it was cruel what yep. happened. And by the girl being a little older than the boy, yes, she had some control over him. And he had to be in love with her to want to join her once he thought she was dead. Right. But they need to look at the realistic of the teenagers nowadays. They do have sex and all of that, too. So maybe this girl wanted somebody around about her age. Maybe her peers was laughing at her. You never know what happened. Right. And so I think maybe that could have been a way to get rid of the boy. Or maybe it was just a nasty prank. Yeah, I don't think I. I don't really think she probably intended he would kill himself. She probably just. Well, you're right. I mean, wanted wanted him to dump her or whatever, and wanted him to, or, or just, or who, you know, who knows what goes through kids' minds, Angeline? You know, who knows? You got that right. Yeah, no, th- no. Th- I mean, who knows? And and of course, that that's the. See, I, I, here, here's the thing. I guess here's where I come down on this. I think, I think misdemeanor charges in juvenile court are appropriate because of the consequences, uh, because of of what ended up happening here. Do you put her in prison for the rest of her life? No, but that's not what these charges are. But at the same time, I think. What, what's going on is that you have, you know, the district attorney here who's like standing up and saying, hey, we're, we're trying to set limits when it ends up coming to the, this type of cyber bullying, because that, that's a variation of what this is. But again, big picture, which is the reason I find this to be fascinating beyond just the tragic results of this case. The, the big picture is moms and dads. It, it is a there. The Internet is a wonderful thing that, that Al Gore invented, and it helps 
you know, make a lot of our lives easier and better and, you know, we're able to be more informed and all that type of stuff. But there are dark corners out there. And kids, kids have always been mean. Kids have always, and I say kids, but adults too. A lot of adults are mean. Kids have always played practical jokes or pranks. And a lot of times, you know, a 13-year-old doesn't have the judgment that God gave a, a goose. And again, I don't know what the dynamics were between this boy and the girl, but, um, I, I think clearly, I mean, there was something going on in the girl's head. Do I believe that she intended to kill himself? No, but it was this mean sort of thing. But this is the cautionary tale to moms and dads out there. And, I mean, I, I'm not going to blame the grieving mom, but it is this idea that, you know, when, when you've got somebody who's 10 or 11 years old, um, just letting them roam the Internet or looking at these message boards or whatever, you never know what could happen. Sandy in Wauwatosa. Sandy, good morning. You're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, Sandy. Um, I don't honestly say she's not, you know, at fault, but I think rather than calling it a crime and so forth, perhaps she should be um, given some public service challenge, like writing a video and creating it and Mm -hmm. seeing that kids in her age group at schools get to see this, because I think if they hear that from a peer, they're going to respond and yeah. that's better. And there's nothing we can do with the parents that let the kids roam. Right. Well, free. except yeah. Well, except it just kind of remind them that this is the kind of thing that happens. So thanks for calls. And and actually though, I mean, like a community service thing or something like that isn't. I don't think it's a bad idea, actually. But by charging her with a misdemeanor, that's one of the ways. That's one of the ways you get the hook. You say, okay, you know, I'm, we're going to put you on probation. Um, but as a condition of the probation, you have to do this, that, or or the other thing. Assuming now, of course, this is the other thing. Assuming that the girl is truly regretful. I mean, we we haven't heard from we haven't heard from the girl. Maybe I'm maybe I'm giving her more credit than she deserves. Maybe this was hey, you know, I, I read Romeo and Juliet in class, and you know, maybe uh, you know, maybe if I if I say that I'm dead, you know, we can get you know him to do the Romeo thing. I mean, I don't think that's the case, but you you never know. Mary in Oak Creek. Mary, you're on 620 WTMJ. I just have a question. I have I have two sons. Uh, who lets their 11-year-old son have a girlfriend? My sons didn't have girlfriends when they were 11. I bet uh, you didn't have a girlfriend when you were 11. I, I didn't, 15. 15. 15, my sons were. Yeah. You're right. That's exactly the age that they were allowed to have a girlfriend. I, I just think these kids are starting too young. I have a 9-year-old grandson. I mean, I'm picturing him in two years having a girlfriend? No way. <laughs> right. Now, again, I don't know. I mean, they're, they're using the term girlfriend. I mean, he, right. you know, 11 and 13, but that's that's how he described No, I I remember. I, I was 15. My first girlfriend was 16. She could drive. That was, that, <laughs> that was why my son went out with his first girlfriend. <laughs> really? He was 16, and she could drive. And he came home, and he's like, oh, I got a girlfriend. I'm going to homecoming. She can drive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I hey, thanks for going. I, I just, I'm, you know, I'm, matter of fact, I'm, I'm still occasionally in touch with my, my first girlfriend. Um, you know, she's, she's an attorney in Wisconsin, a different part of Wisconsin. Every once in a while, we are we, we remain in touch with each other. It was more than just the fact that she could drive. That we, 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 were, we, we got along very well. She was a very nice, very nice young lady. who's grown into a, an outstanding woman. And it's, but, um, <laughs> uh, but, no, but it was that my my friends used to kid me. Oh, you're dating this older woman here. She could drive. You know, that was that was there was that flexibility. You know, this is a serious type of thing. And again, it's a cautionary tale. Moms and dads, you, you just you got to know what's out there. 
I, I do think something needs to happen, and the, the only way that you can actually force something happening is by getting the, the 13-year-old into the system. Will it make other 13-year-olds think twice before they do this? Uh, unfortunately, probably not. But um, my guess is this stuff goes on all the time. And the big distinction here is you, you had the extreme reaction to it. Um, tragic story. I think the DA is right to charge him. Do you put the girl in prison for the rest of her life? No. But it is a cautionary tale. It's 1054. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. <laughs> It's 1057, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, coming up in about 10 minutes. She's back, Hillary Clinton, giving a major interview, and she raises one very provocative point that, surprise follows surprise, you may very well agree with. We will discuss coming up, and I don't understand, Hillary Clinton, agree with her? I'm just saying, you may very well agree with her. We'll talk about that in less than 10 minutes. Colleen Boland, when was your first, how old were you when you had your first boyfriend? (laughs) That was not a a question I was expected to be asked right now. Actually, I was 15. 15? Well, no, that was the, I I was 15 when I had my first girlfriend, the lady I was just talking to, her her sons, it was 15. I I was just talking about, I was talking about the story about the 11-year-old who ended up killing himself because he got pranked by his 13-year-old girlfriend. So 15 was that, but uh, yeah, 15, that sounded about right. All right. Was he older? No. No, he was. Okay. See, I I dated a 16-year-old. She could drive. Yeah, no, so that, older women. Absolutely. Just just older women. All right. Easter is coming up. This is one of my favorite stories. It, it, it just if you want to if you wonder about political correctness run amok, I, I don't know if it'll make you feel better, but it is not exclusively limited to the United States. All right. So what is one of there's lots of traditions that come with Easter. And I, by the way, I also appreciate that this is the for Christians. This is really the holiest time of, of the year. But um, all right. You have Easter parades. And you have Easter bonnets. You know the song, In My Easter Bonnet, with all the frills upon it, etc., etc. In Australia, parents across Australia are blasting what they call nonsensical political correctness after a number of schools who have for years and years and years had traditional hat parades where people wear the bonnets. They are no longer called Easter parades. They are now called hat parades because we want to be inclusive and we don't want somebody who doesn't celebrate Easter to feel excluded. So it's now kind of a hat parade, even though it is a hat parade because of Easter. Political correctness, it goes across the oceans as well. It's 1059, coming up in just a couple minutes. Hillary might be right on one thing. Stick around. It's 11.08, Jeff Wagner. So glad to have you with us. All right. One of the lessons of what happened in Syria over the course of the last week is that you cannot make deals with dictators. And Barack Obama got played for a chump in thinking that you you could. I mean, all remember, I mean, back in, back in 2013, after the president of Syria, the the dictator Assad had gassed his own people in 2013 um you know that that was after Barack Obama had said okay we've got this line in the sand you know don't cross it they they crossed it and then Obama let him get away with it 
the way they let him get away with it was by he, striking the, this deal where John Kerry, then the Secretary of State, sat down with the Russians, who are essentially propping up the government of Syria, and they cut this deal. Here's what the deal is. We're going to negotiate a solution to this. The Russians said, we're going to broker this. We're going to make sure that all the chemical weapons disappear. This can never happen again. And now... Now, after what happened last week, with more than 80 civilians being killed in a, a sarin gas attack on um, this small town in northern Syria by Syrian forces, you know, we now know that Obama, definitively, know, we know that Obama was played like a chump. I mean, this either there was never in t- any intention to do this, uh, to get rid of the gas, or Russia didn't follow up, or, or whatever. But but the truth is, clearly, this agreement that they cut in 2013, aimed at eliminating the the chemical weapons, it it, it didn't work. Which have I think a lot of people now recognizing you cannot make deals with, with dictators, and thinking that you can make deals with dictators is naive at best. Which then means, okay, what do you end up doing moving forward? All of which gets me to Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton um, has now come out of the woods, and she's starting to give interviews. You know, over um, you know over the weekend, you know, she ended up giving one of her first you know post-election interviews, where you know she was talking about how how tough it was to lose the election, and I, I'm sure it was, especially when you, you think you're going to win and then have. The rug kind of pulled out from you by the electorate. And, you know, they were asking her, of course, you know, why she thought she lost. And her thing is, well, you know, she she can't she can't explain the fact that 53 percent of white women voted for Trump. She blames, you know, the usual suspects. She says it was Russian interference. It was the FBI director. It was misogyny. People hating women. I mean, again, a lot of the usual type of 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 suspects that are out there instead of maybe recognizing that perhaps she was a horribly flawed candidate. But but now she's starting to talk about public policy matters. And this is what she says. She says, well, I'm I'm very worried about the, the future of, of the country. And they say, okay, what specifically? And she says, well, I'm worried about Trump's policies towards women in health care. Um, I'm worried about his Russian, interf- the interference of Russia in the election, you know, all kind of the usual things. But then she started talking about Syria. And she said, look, here, here's what I think should happen. She said, I, I think the U.S. should declare a no-fly zone and attack Syrian government airfields in order to deprive Assad's air force of the ability to bomb civilians. She says that air force is the cause of most of the civilian deaths, as we have seen over the years and as we saw again in the last couple days. I really believe that we should have and still should take out his airfields and prevent him from being able to use them to bomb innocent people and drop sarin gas on them. Now, that's quite a change from what Obama did, and it's a lot farther than what Donald Trump has done. You know, you had the one targeted attack on the one airport, and uh, apparently the airport is, is operational again, but I don't think it's operational in the same sense it was before the bombs fell. But she's saying we need to be aggressive. We need to ratchet this up. 
Who cares what Russia says about this? We should be bombing the airports. We should be bombing the airfields. We should be destroying this guy's air force or whatever is left of it, because if we do that, then he won't be able to attack um, civilians. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage talk and text line. Okay, just because it's Hillary doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. As a matter of fact, that attitude that she is expressing is what you're hearing from some of the more hardline Republicans. Should we get involved? Should we start launching a more aggressive, massive, preemptive bombing campaign in Syria in order to make sure that what happened last week never happens again? 414-799-1620 is the number. I'll tell you where I come on down on this, and we will discuss next. But, I mean, what do you think? Would you like to see us, as Hillary suggests, getting more aggressive when it comes to launching missile strikes or, or bombing? Should we try to decide to destroy uh, Assad's air force in order to prevent him from being able to continue to do what he did last week? Or... Will that just draw us inextricably into a mess in Syria? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We discuss next. What do you think? It's 1115. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. It is 1117, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Are we getting any closer to a transportation fix? No. Here from the man right at the center of the debate is Assembly Speaker Robin Voss. Joins Scafidi and Billstead today at 135. Um, that, of course, is the uh, Robin Voss, who's been one of the le- leaders in the Assembly of trying to push for additional funding for road projects. He's been getting pushback from the governor and um, how this all ends, who knows? If I was if I was a betting guy, I would bet on the governor. But yeah, it'll be interesting to see where we're going. So, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss joins Scafidi and Billstead today at one thirty-five. All right. The question becomes: Is Hillary right? Hillary comes out of the woods, gives an interview yesterday where she says, "What we need to do is we need to escalate what we are doing in Syria. We need to declare a no-fly zone." We need to attack Syrian government airfields. We have to deprive the dictator in Syria of his ability to bomb civilians. It's this what's been going on. All right. I understand that what Hillary is talking about has some appeal. If I were advising President Trump, I would say once again, Hillary is wrong on this one. What I think was the beauty of the airstrike, the missile strike that he launched, the Trump launched last week, was the fact that it was measured, it was targeted, it was well planned out in order to avoid collateral damage. They gave the rush. Look, we don't want to get into World War Three in Syria. At least that is my belief. As I've been arguing for the longest time, we talked about earlier in the show. I don't. To me, Russia, other than maybe some access to warm weather ports, as one of my listeners was pointing out, um, other than that, 
Russia does not have that much interest in Syria. Matter of fact, Russian involvement in Syria is incredibly unpopular in Russia. Russia is an economic mess. And on the domestic front, you have a lot of Russians who are going, okay, we've got all these problems here. Why are we spending all this money? Why are we in Syria? I think as much as anything, this is kind of a face-saving effort for, for Russia. And I don't know that Russia really cares that much at the end of the day about Syria. But what Russia... Russia doesn't want to be forced into a position of having to back down. That's why I think, you know, the United States, the answer to this is for the United States to use economic pressure on Russia to try to force them to dial it back and do what Putin probably really wants to do, which is get get out of Russia in the first place. But if all of a sudden, over the course of the next few days, you have the U.S. Um, you know, the U.S. military forces that decide we're going to start making bombing runs on on all the different military airports that are there in an effort to take out the air force. We're going to start sending tomahawk missiles, you know, willy nilly, and attacking these different air force airports. I think at that point in time, you may in fact force the hand of Russia to get involved in a situation that they probably want to try to figure out a way to get out of in the first place. Again, I think what you've got to give Donald Trump credit for, and this was a situation where he apparently, at least as far as I've been able to figure this out, acted on the advice of the generals, that this was one where it was a measured response. They had it planned out. They warned the Russians because there were some Russians that were located um, in at this airport, they it's military base. They warned them that this was coming. Uh, they didn't discuss it with them, but they warned them it was coming, and they gave you know them an opportunity to get out, thereby you know minimizing again that sort of collateral damage. I, I just to me, to me, if you start a, launching an aggressive attack, trying to take out all the airplanes, you really do risk run the risk of escalating this into a situation where I, I don't know. I, I don't know who the winners are. If if you can force Russia to pull back its support, the Assad regime crumbles. Now, what takes its place is a whole different story. Um, let's see. On our text line, we have, we should bomb Syrian airports, but only after we have formed a strong coalition of numerous foreign countries from both Europe, Asia, etc., much like we did for Operation Desert Storm in 1991, and we should have congressional approval. I, I mean, I, I would think that's a minimum. Now, I, ideally... What you would have is you would have the United Nations that would be doing this. But unfortunately, again, the United Nations is just completely and totally useless. But for America to unilaterally start launching airstrikes or missile strikes on airports all across Syria, which would inevitably have huge collateral consequences, not only killing Russians, but probably also killing civilians, at some point in time you say, no, I don't think that's the way to go about it. So... Hillary Clinton, she says she's not going to run for elective, for elective office again, but she intends to be a spokesperson when it comes to various issues. If, if her answer is we are going to dramatically escalate what is going on in Syria, we're going to have the missiles and the bombs start flying, I think it is very, very good that she did not win last November. It might, in fact, come to that at some point in time, but we're not there now, and hopefully – Hopefully Trump is saying, I don't make deals with dictators like um, Obama did. I This is how I handle this. Hopefully that strategy will work better. Just saying. It's 1123, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ.
It's 11:25. Jeff Wagner, 6:20 WTMJ. The playoff-bound Bucks play their final regular season home game this evening against the Charlotte Hornets. Ted Davis and Dennis Krause are live from the BMO Harris Bradley Center. That begins at 6:40 this evening. Yeah, credit where credit is due. I um, I if if I had been in Las Vegas or chose to place a bet on the Bucks season, the over/under this year. In other words, you could bet on whether they're going to win. They set a certain number of games, and then you can bet on whether they would win more than that. That would be over or under. The over under the line was thirty nine. So I think the the experts had the Bucks pegged for like thir- there's so thirty nine and forty three is what they had them pegged for. And I confess, after last season, if I had been a betting man, and I guess I am a betting man, but if I had decided to put money on it, I, I would have I would have bet the under. I didn't think that they would get to 39 wins. And candidly, one of the reasons I didn't bet that is I'm a fan of the Bucks, and I didn't want to – I did not want to have an economic interest that was apart from my rooting interest as a fan. I didn't want to be rooting for the team to lose. So, But I, I didn't think that they were going to make 39 games. I, I didn't. And now they're um, – they're what at forty or forty one wins. Um, so they, they've they, they've blown through that or forty two. Maybe they've blown through that number. So they have exceeded experts' um, expectations, and they're going to make the playoffs. And the only question is, where do they fall in in, season, in seedings? And I, I will tell you, after they lost Jabari Parker to that catastrophic uh, knee injury, a second catastrophic injury to, to the same lead. Um, so they're what they're forty one and. Forty-one and thirty-nine. So okay. So they, I mean, they're already over the the over/under line, and so they're assured if they got forty-one wins, it's at least a five hundred season. If they pick up one or two more games, uh, it, great season. I mean, especially considering where they came from. Uh, got to give them a lot of credit. And once again, you can hear the final home game tonight against the Charlotte Hornets. That's regular season home game. They will be, of course, around for the playoffs. Milwaukee County's Clown Car Act just continues to have the little cars pull out and the different clowns jumping out. Um, There is Chris Abley, the county executive, has requested what is being described in the newspaper as an unprecedented independent audit of the pension system. The audit, the audit is going to cost $645,000. How can an audit cost six hundred forty five thousand dollars that that's that's number one it is beginning to it's going to begin monday it is expected to uncover more retirement office mistakes in calculating benefits um what they're trying to do is they're trying to figure out how how we we issue, they apparently issue like almost eighty two hundred pension checks a month and i i guess there's not a lot of confidence that the numbers that are in those pension checks are are reliable which, again, makes you skeptical as to, you know, what's going on here. A few days before outside auditors arrived, the Retirement Plan Services Office um, notified employees that um, there were underpayment errors to more than 150 more retirees. It's going to cost the pension fund $30,000 to correct these underpayments caused by miscalculations. This, of course, on the heels of a, a number of overpayments that were made to a number of uh, retirees. And now, of course, people are wrestling with the whole idea of how do we collect these overpayments that were made in apparently good faith to the employees? How do we get the money back from them? Bottom line of all this is it is just crazy. Whenever Milwaukee County touches something, it seems, 
it gets messed up. And pension plans, as a general rule, don't have the, these type of problems. Pension pan, plans have problems. You know, their, their investments, you know, don't work out, and so they end up being underfunded or whatever. But, but you don't hear about pension plans having hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of screw-ups with regard to how they calculate what people are owed. And, yes, it's important to get to the bottom of that, but it's also important to recognize that this is a hopelessly screwed-up system, and what the county really needs to be doing is figuring out a way to convince the state to take this problem off its hands. Because can we ever have any confidence? If the last 15 years have taught us nothing, it's that Milwaukee County doesn't know what it's doing when it comes to pensions. It's 1135, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. What? How do you get the likes of Paul McCartney and the Rolling Stones to play your stage? What's the key to convincing some of the most famous musical acts in history to come to your city? We pull the curtain back on the secrets of Summerfest when Don Smiley and Bob Babish join me for Insight 2017 next Wednesday night. That is April 19th. It's actually a week from Wednesday. You won't want to miss this rare sit-down with two of the entertainment industry's heaviest hitters. Tickets are available now. Now online at WTMJ.com. Get them before they're gone. Um, it's going to be a wonderful, wonderful night. And I'm looking forward to seeing everybody. Get to see a lot of these newsmakers up close and personal. Hondo, who is producing the show today and always. You know what Yelp is, of course, correct? Do you rely on Yelp ever? Do you go and do, do you read? You will check it out occasionally. Do you ever write reviews on Yelp? No, you've never done it. I actually have, have a friend who, when we will go to restaurants, he will regularly, I mean, he'll take notes, he'll take pictures, and he'll do Yelp reviews. If you're not familiar with Yelp, Yelp is a, it's it's an online application. And what you can do is everybody gets to be a restaurant critic, essentially, or a critic of other things as well. I mean, businesses or whatever. You can post reviews on Yelp of your experience at a particular you know, restaurant, store, whatever. Did I have a good experience? Did I have a bad experience? Whatever. And then people, if they decide they want to patronize Hondo's Hardware Store, can check out Yelp to see if there are reviews on Hondo's Hardware Store. Now, the problem is that you don't know really who is writing the review on Yelp. You don't know what their experience is. Now, you can check. There, there's Some people are prolific. So, you know, like my, my friend... Jim writes, or at least he used to, write a ton of reviews. So, I mean, you, you could go and you, you could check out, okay, this is somebody that's written, you know, reviews for 50 restaurants or, or whatever. So you'd be able to go and read some of the other ones. So you'd be able to determine, do I agree with this guy or, or not? But it, everybody gets to be a critic, and you as the consumer get to, you know, decide whether you want to use it or not. But just like critics' reviews – can make or break a restaurant or can make or break a, uh, again, a movie or whatever. Um, critical reviews can have a huge impact and can, can potentially damage business. So, like, again, if, if I'm looking at a particular store or a restaurant and I go and there's this Yelp review that says, hey, there were bugs all over the restaurant and it was disgusting, all right, well, Maybe I'll try it out, but I, I, that might be in the back of my mind saying, well, there are three new restaurants I want to try out. This guy says that there were bugs all over. I'm not going to go. All right. Here is the story. There's there, there's a jewelry store 
in, in Massachusetts. Um, it, it's called Stephen Lee Jewelers. And what happens is, so they're, they're in the business of, of selling jewelry. In August of 2013, so this is three and a half years ago, there, there is a Yelp review, a multi-paragraph review that's posted on, on Yelp. Um, and it's in it, the person is describing the visit to the jewelers. The reviewer says he entered the shop looking to buy a one and a half carat diamond engagement ring and then um, details what would be described as a generally bad experience. So it's multi-paragraphs talking about the problems he had in the store and rude employees and all those type of things. As a result, the reviewer said that they would go, uh, they would advise someone interested in buying jewelry or a watch to go elsewhere. Well, there's, there's a lot of I mean, a lot of business owners, you know, pay attention to this because they understand that, you know, bad word of mouth or bad reviews on Yelp can can really hurt their business. So the owner of the jewelry store says, you know, this just sounds odd because I talk to my employees and, and nobody nobody remembers this. Now, I mean, I, I know if you're in the restaurant business or you're in a hardware store business or whatever, I, you know, you the customer isn't always right. And I understand that, you know, there's going to be times when you get into interactions and maybe you see this negative review posted on Yelp or something, but chances are you're going to remember the incident. You might think it's unfair. You might think that they're wrong. You might think that they're just being the customer from you know where, but at least you're going to remember, oh, I know who that person was. Well, the owner says, I didn't, I didn't wait on this person. And they start asking the sales clerks and nobody says, we, we just don't, nobody remembers this particular Incident. They don't remember a guy coming in looking for a one and a half carat diamond ring around this part. So they start doing some research. What it turns out is that the guy who wrote the review is an employee at another area jewelry store. It also turns out that the entire thing is made up. It was it never happened. Never went into the store looking to to buy the ring. Never had the bad experience. He's just an employee of a rival jewelry store who's gone in and has now written this bogus review with the effort, with the obvious intent of trying to, you know, hurt the jewelry store's business. And this is a small town, so I, I don't know how many jewelry stores there are. But obviously, if you you know damage the reputation of one business, you know maybe people. If they're looking to buy a one and a half carat diamond ring, they're more likely to go to one of the other jewelry stores. So it's it's apparently it's a completely made up review. Well, I guess there's a lot of things that you can do, but in this case, the owner of the business, the owner of the jewelry store that was the subject of the bad review, says, "I'm not going to take this lying down," and they sue the man who wrote the phony review. And they demand thousands of thousands of dollars for posting this false Yelp review. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage talk and text line. How big a deal is this? I think the facts are pretty much uncontroverted, that it was a phony review. In, the contact never happened. The owner of the store that was the subject of this review is mad as you know what, and he sues, and he demands money is he entitled to anything or is this just 
Hey, okay, somebody posted this on the Internet. People put all sorts of stuff up on the Internet all the time. Trust me, I know that's the case. They put all sorts of stuff up there. I mean, should the man who made up this review be liable to the store owner, or is this no big deal? Is this just kind of what happens in the Wild West that is in the Internet? I'll tell you what I think. But I'm curious as to what you think. We will discuss this next. If you're on the line, please hold on. And if you have a business that's ever been the subject of, of something like this, maybe not a phony review, but how big a deal is it that somebody posts a nasty online review? It's 1142. We discuss next. If you're on the line, please hold on. Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. The Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line is 414-799-1620. It's 1146, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ. Okay, here's the story. Guy runs a jewelry store. All of a sudden, he checks out this review on Yelp. Somebody talks about what a horrible experience they had at the jewelry store. Says, I would never shop here. Nobody else should shop here. They, they, they can't. They, they don't, nobody in the jewelry store remembers anybody coming in like that. Turns out it was an employee at another area jewelry store who went in and made this whole thing up. It wasn't even like a bad experience. It just it never happened. Now the first jewelry store owner files a lawsuit. Is this one of the things, do you just suck this up, or does he think you think he's got a case? Paul on the south side. Paul, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hi, good morning. I definitely think he's got a case. I own a business, excavating business. And a lot of people, I got reviews on there, and a lot of people refer to the fact that I have good reviews. Mm-hmm. So it does, it does really matter. I think he should sue him just, just to. It's the point. Okay. Somebody might bypass that business, knowing even though he's a good business, and he did this guy. Obviously, he was getting commissions at the other place. Right. And was probably trying to sell more at his place. You right. Know? So this is, and of course here, it's not even like the guy, you could even argue that he had a bad experience because he never went in there. He just completely made this thing up. So if somebody did this to you, you'd be mad as you know what, right? Oh, yes. Most definitely I'd be angry because I make it a point to take really good care of my customers because word of mouth is a big, big business. Right. And you think if you had some like really scathing Yelp review or some review of something posted on Facebook or whatever, you think it would have the potential to hurt your business? Most definitely. I'd, be, I'd do exactly what they did. i try to get down to the bottom of it to make it right. Right. Thanks for the call. Appreciate it. 414-799-1620. Um, yeah, I see. I, I'm 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 actually with Paul. I I think this is a big deal. I th- this to me. See, this isn't even all right. First of all, the customer's not always right. Sometimes there's just cranks or kooks or whatever or people that you can't make happy. Sometimes, hey, you go into a restaurant. I'll use that as the best example. They, they just have a bad night. I mean, but but. But this isn't even that. This isn't even like an arguable thing. Hey, I went in and I didn't like my meal or whatever. This is a guy who never went in in the first place, who just completely made it up. Jeff in Wauwatosa. Jeff, you're on 620 WTMJ. Good morning. Hey, Jeff. I'm no Alan Dershowitz, (laughs) but I suspect that this man has a pretty good case for libel because um, the other person said something untrue about his operation, and it, it does seem to have affected his business. Does it? Would you, okay, if you, Jeff, if you were deciding to go, like, to a jewelry store and, you you know, checked out something on Yelp and you saw, like, a bad review, would it make you less likely to go to that store? Absolutely. Okay, yeah. so you you rely, I mean, you're a smart guy, you rely on, on these reviews that you see. Yeah, and not long ago I was apartment hunting and I was looking at other people's reviews and, it, and there's one situation where it did make me a little weary of, of one place. Yeah, no, thanks. I mean, I think that's, now, for for me... I view it as as much entertainment as anything else because 
again, you, you read some of the stuff that gets put up on the Internet and you kind of like roll your eyes. But, I mean, you know, people have their different opinions and all. So that's why, like, for example, one bad review wouldn't scare me off. But but multiple bad reviews. I, I remember when we were looking to, to purchase, we got my dog from a breeder. And when we were trying to check out breeders, that was that was one of the things. And there were a couple of different breeders. We ended up getting her from a, a, a breeder in the Upper Peninsula. But, you know, there were, there were a couple. And there was one breeder that had all – it wasn't just one review. One bad review in, in a sea of lots of good reviews wouldn't scare me off. But if there were a series of bad reviews and they all appeared to be saying the same thing, that would be a red flag. And actually, candidly, that was one of the decisions. You know, we went with – there was one breeder that I think initially we were going to go with, and then we started seeing all these reviews, and there were multiple bad reviews. It it made us go to you know another breeder, Jamie in Kenosha. Jamie, you're on six twenty WTMJ. Yes, uh, well, we're small business owners also, and uh, my lord, I mean, we tackle it. We we will reply back on it and right. bad reviews from Facebook and stuff. But the thing is, if you sue them, that's great. You get the piece of paper, but yeah. you know if they don't have any money, yeah. you're not going to get no money from a you can't, from a rock. Yeah. So it doesn't matter how much you want to spend, and saying, okay, yeah, I sued, I won, but you know, yeah. I'm out ten thousand dollars. Right. I'm suing. Jamie, what, just in general terms, what's the nature of your business? Childcare. Okay, so uh, if you were to have. If you were to get negative reviews on Facebook or Yelp or something like that, do you think it does impact your ability to get clients? It does. Yeah. Uh, it does. And um, we try to do, like I said, we try to please every parent. Yeah. Um, Sometimes you can't. And then, you know, Facebook, we got some negative reviews. And I always tell my, I know who it was, and it was BS. He goes, look, just reply back and just drop it. And he says, he, his client, he says, I'd be worried about someone has all positive reviews, no negative, because they're just... Yeah. Building it up. Well, well, right, exactly. Because you can't. I mean, you can't make everybody happy. No, thanks. You, you can't. And I, and, and so that's why I always, again, try to take it with a grain of salt. Wait, well, you know, in this particular case, here, here's what happened. Um, the guy sued, and and he actually won. And you know, now again, he got a judgment of about thirty-five thousand dollars for emotional distress. It went to it went to a jury trial. Now, you raise a really interesting good interesting point, Jamie. One of my, um, I always remember my. Jim Giardi, late, great, passed away last year, was a great torts professor of mine and a great friend over the years. You know, and he always used to say you can sue anybody, but you're exactly right. If, if the person doesn't have any money, you sue them, you get a judgment, well, try to collect. But, I, I mean, I don't know how collectible this is, but I think this owner did exactly the right thing. And jury found, yeah, he had lied about this. Um, again, this is the last hour of the show. We've had a couple, like, cautionary tales with regard to the Internet. I guess this is this is another one. I mean, I appreciate... The value of Facebook reviews, I appreciate the value of things like Yelp. But the truth is, you don't know who's posting these, and you don't know whether they have access to grind. Now, in this particular case, when I hear the guy, when I hear that the guy never, ever, ever, you know, went into the store and just completely made it up, to me, to me, that's that borders on fraud. If it hurts the business, if it causes the business owner distress, you betcha the character is liable. And I think the jury did absolutely the right thing. It is 1153. In just a couple minutes, we'll have one comment on what happened in Washington today and then find out what Scafidi and Billstat have on their minds. Stick around. 1153, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ.
1155, Jeff Wagner, 620 WTMJ, 77 degrees outside. Looks like there's a cold front that's going to be moving through and potential for some uh, heavy thunderstorms or at least severe weather a little bit later on this afternoon. Keep it tuned to News Radio 620 WTMJ. We'll keep you updated. And so it's going to go from 76 down to, I think, 38 tonight. So oh. we're going to see a. Yeah, we, that was Eric Bilston. Sorry. Yeah, we know. We're going to see it. Like, that's what I thought I saw. It's like, go, go 38. It's like it's 76. But I'll, I'll enjoy that while it lasts. Hey, one final thing before we turn it over to uh, the guys. The sun came up Saturday. The sun came up Sunday. And the sun came up today. Now, why, why do you question that? Well, because over the last several months, there has been, I mean, I don't know how many trees have given their lives to create the, the paper that the news stories were printed on. I don't know how many pixels have been exploded in, uh, in uh, electronic media about the nuclear option. Oh, what's going to happen if the Senate allows a Supreme Court justice to be confirmed by a majority vote? Well, Friday... Neil Gorsuch was confirmed to the Supreme Court by a majority vote, and the sun came up. And this morning, Neil Gorsuch was sworn in as a member of the United States Supreme Court. The sun came up. Everything is fine. He will be an outstanding justice. And the bigger question is, I think to me, you know, in 2017, why do we still allow the tyranny of the minority? Why do we allow on other matters a relative handful of United States senators to block the will of the people as expressed by their democratically elected uh, by the electorate? Just just saying. So for everybody who's worrying about and hand-wringing over the um, the whole idea of the filibuster is going to go away, the nuclear option, yeah, big deal. All right. At that point. As I said for weeks, Jeff, much to do about nothing. Yeah. It, it, was a, it was a neutral swap. We got exchanged one justice for another that both conservatives. So what we got on the show today, we are going to dig into this United Airlines story. This is fascinating to me. How you can go that far over the top to remove a passenger, you got to figure that out and make that less of a story. Well, especially since it's an overbooking thing and they're trying to toss four paying customers off so they can get a United flight crew on the plane mm-hmm. so they can get to Louisville for a flight the next day. Um, you know, two words, rental car. I mean, it's it's only 300 miles. I mean, it's only, or, or doesn't United have like another little jet or something that could shuttle, shuffle them down? The amazing part about what you just said is during the confrontation and as they're dragging this guy out, who clearly isn't prepared to be handled the way he was handled, a woman yells that. A passenger says, why don't they just rent a car and head down there? So that idea was even thrown out as this was taking place. That poor guy. You wonder if there's going to be some long-standing ramifications for him. Just the way he was grabbed and handled, you could tell that he was not right afterward. He that messed him up. I can imagine it's a really bad day for United social media and customer service people today. So all that's coming up. Scafidia Bill says is next on 620 WTMJ.